Welcome to Maniacally Midwest, a true crime podcast. Hello, lovely listeners. Thank you for joining us again this week at Maniacally Midwest. I am the baddest bee around, Katie. And here's the second baddest bee, Chloe. I don't know who voted on these rankings, but... The world. Slide? The world did. It's fine. Just calm down. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If this is your first time tuning in to us, um, we are a true crime podcast about murders and true crime that happens in the Midwest, the nicest slash weirdest place in the United States. And we're allowed to say that because we're both Midwesterners, so suck it. Don't <laughs> mad us with your California bullshit. <laughs> you guys are exactly. <laughs> um, before we jump into it, if you guys haven't checked out Dahmer on Netflix, that is probably the the cream of the crop of murders. I mean, Wisconsin has a couple of them because there's Dahmer and there's Ed Gein. And if you move into Illinois, you got uh, John Wayne Gacy. But what is the name of the actor? Evan Peters. Peters. Yeah, I posted on Instagram that everyone should be as upset as I am that Charlie Barron's was not cast for the role. Although Evan did a fantastic job with the Midwest accent. He was so spot on. Like, I was impressed. Okay. I want to know what kind of studying he did for this. Like, I'm assuming he met with Charlie Barron's. That's what I was just going to say. Is I. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And if you you want an extra treat past Dahmer, you guys can check out the Cripes Cast podcast with Charlie Barron's because they just uploaded a new episode with him and Chris Stefano. So my two spirit animals met. Yes. And it was magical. I've already listened to it. I also <clears throat> shout out to Chris Stefano. Um but he also promoted that this week Chris is in Wisconsin. He's at um shoot, what is the name of the theater in Madison? I don't remember. Bearmore Theater. Bearmore Theater in Madison. Yeah. And then Turner Hall in Milwaukee. So I think, well, I don't know. By the time this is out, maybe it's over. If it's not, you should go buy some tickets because I don't think they're sold out. So check it out. You're welcome. Enjoy also, your life. he gets us Wisconsinites. All right. Go check it out. He understands. <laughs> mm-hmm. He really does. He He said that he would shove a, what did he say? A pretzel up his ass. It was a pretzel or a PBR. It was something Wisconsin. Something, something from Wisconsin will be going up his butt if things don't get pulled out. So I hope for his sake it's not a Kringle because those are big. Large, yeah. And they are a large circle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I'm loving right. your Starbucks cup. Oh, thank you. I got it half off. Tell me you're um, from the Midwest without telling me you're from the Midwest. <laughs> When you compliment somebody and they tell you how much it was on sale. (laughs) Mm -hmm. No, um, 
This is a great segue into a really important point. I'm on the hunt for a glow-in-the-dark studded Starbucks cup. They're sold out. It's very stressful. But I got really excited when, like, a couple of weeks ago, I saw, like, a crap ton of the cold cups and everything have the stickers for clearance because I'm like, oh, we're getting new inventory. Yeah. So I have no life, in case you were wondering. (laughs) But anyways, this week, Chloe is the big chief, the pod boss, you will, of the of the podcast. This one gives me the creeps, okay? I've been sitting over here freaking out, like, in this house by myself. It's me and the baby, and I'm like, this, full disclosure, these murders happened in the 60s. I'm not convinced that this person is not in the house with me right now. Like, I have been freaked out. Oh my god, the fucking cat just creeped up on me, you guys. I just saw my life flash before my eyes. I can't even deal. <laughs> well, I got your back because I'm watching behind you. If someone shows up, I'll notify you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Okay, so now that I'm all sketched out, um, this week we are heading to Ypsilanti, Michigan, a.k.a. Ipsy. It's right outside of Ann Arbor, like over on the eastern side of the state. And yeah, you'd know it by if you ever looked at the map and you're like, what the crap is this name? There's a Y, there's a P, there's an S, there's an L. This seems like someone got something wrong along the way. Because I actually have asked you, how do you say that before? It's a weird one. Okay. And we'll get into it. But for starters... It's home to Eastern Michigan University, so that's its like big claim to fame. Um, it's like a small college town, basically. It's got like twenty one thousand people. It's also the location of the first Domino's Pizza. That's special. Oh, wow, there's like a a fight for glory over on that side of the state because isn't the East Side the home of Little Caesars? Oh yeah, and those people own everything. I think they just bought the. <laughs> he hates it. He's not about it. Um, I think they just bought the law school at Wayne State University, but they also, they're like insanely wealthy. What is the guy's name? I can think of his face. Okay, so it was named after this guy, Demetrios Ypsilantis, and he was a hero in the Greek War of Independence. Yeah, so I'm not entirely sure how that ties in with Michigan. I mean, I do know there's a huge Greek population on the east side of the state uh, because I partake in all of the bomb Greek food that comes along with that. So maybe it has something to do with the big Greek population. I don't know. That's who it's named after. That's where this crazy word came from. See, and I didn't realize there's a lot of Greeks on the east side of the state. I knew that there's a lot of like... um... Middle Eastern. Middle Eastern. Yeah, that's the yeah. word I was looking for. Like I was going to say Arabic, but I didn't mean them specifically. So Yeah, which, I mean, they also bred all their wonderful food. So mm, Yes, delicious. Anyways, go eat on the east side of the state. You won't be disappointed. Um, there aren't a ton of, like, super famous people that have come out of Ipsy, but Iggy Pop, who you may have heard of, he's a singer. AKA the Godfather of Punk. I don't. Who is that? I really don't know. I don't know. I think he's from like the 80s. 
Um, but he grew up in a trailer park right outside of Ypsilanti. Perfect. And I don't know who this is, but Baby Tron, he's a rapper. Katie's probably super familiar. You look like you listen to somebody named Baby Tron. I was thinking that it was going to be some kind of sequel to the Tron movie. So, yeah, super familiar. I was thinking, like, Transformers. Like, there's, like, isn't there, like, Well, that's true. Okay, I'm looking at pictures of Iggy Pop. I don't know who this is. Well, that was the most famous person at Ipsy. A punk band called the Stooges? Well, good for him. Way to go, Godfather. (laughs) Uh, And then I have no idea who this is either, but I thought it was funny just because of how they explained him. So Mike Bass was an NFL player for the Lions and the Redskins. But most importantly, it says that he scored a touchdown in a Super Bowl. So good for you, Mike. Good job. (laughs) Lorenzo thinks so, too. I mean, it probably if he played in the Super Bowl for the Lions, that is impressive. Because this was like way, I don't know if the Super Bowl. I mean, he played like in the 60s. I'm not entirely sure what the Lions record is. I don't know if they've ever been in a Super Bowl. (laughs) I mean, I will straight up say stuff like the Lions suck. And I think that I even know that I'm instigating people because as we've spoken about, I watch zero football. I just like to say things and then people will be like, what? How dare you? And I'm like, "Mm, you can't hurt me with your football insults. Say shit about the Packers. I don't care. (laughs) I'm not going to lose sleep. I mean, speaking of which, this is just a side note, but if you have not seen Aaron Rodgers' haircut currently, he looks kind of like a macaroni penguin. So just go Google some photos. It's a bad time. (laughs) I I think it was Barstool that I saw like a short where he – He's in an interview with a guy, and I don't remember what the first thing was that he said to Aaron Rodgers, and he's like, well, that's one way to piss off people from Wisconsin. And then the other guy's like, the other way is to say the bar's closed. <laughs> they get like, that's yes, kind of a sick burn. That is true. Yeah, you're not wrong. Okay, so... Um, now that we know a little bit about where we're at, let's talk about the timeline. So I think I already kind of touched on this, but we're going all the way back to the 1960s. Specifically, these instances started in 1967. And I haven't really like delved into cases where there are multiple deaths. But unfortunately, in this instance, there's quite a few people involved. So the first victim was a 19-year-old Eastern Michigan University student named Mary Therese Fleshzar. I think I'm saying that right. Um, She was studying accounting, which Katie studied accounting. I'm currently studying accounting. So shout out to the fellow accounting school students. I don't know. I need more coffee. Okay. So she had just moved out of her house for the first time. She'd only been in school for maybe like a month. Super low key, really studious, um, not known to party or anything. So 
Her family and friends thought that it was really odd that she didn't come home on the evening of July 9th, 1967. Yeah, she was last seen by a neighbor walking home to her apartment, and the neighbor observed a young man in a blue Chevy slow down and stop in the road next to Mary and begin talking to her. So the neighbor, like, sees them talking, but, like, obviously can't hear them like they're presumably like in their house or across the street or whatever but they said that they observed them basically exchanging words and then mary shook her head no and walked away from the car and then i guess it happened again where the car like pulled up next to her and stopped and tried to talk to her and again mary shook her head no and then walked away from the car so, unfortunately, the police didn't take the missing reports, uh, missing persons report super seriously. They just kind of wrote it off as typical college student behavior because a lot of times people would go out partying or go to their friends' houses or stuff like that and not show up for a few days but then turn back up. So they were used to this there. Yeah, I think that that was pretty common during like the 60s and 70s that like kidnapping reports were kind of like, "Ah, people do things, kids just being kids, and then they kind of brush it off, which is not ideal. Yeah, sketch. So Mary was found about a month later on August August 7th by two 15-year-old boys. Her body was found on the side of the road, basically. Um, at an abandoned farm and she was found completely nude and her body was decomposing pretty badly oh god uh, yeah super brutal so the examiner who was at the scene noted that she had been stabbed approximately 30 times in the chest and abdomen uh, with what looked to be like a knife or another sharp object Uh, her feet had been severed just below the ankle. Were her were her feet with her body or no? I don't believe so because it said that a bunch of these uh, pieces of her body were never found because also her thumb and parts of her fingers on one hand were missing and one of her forearms had been severed from her body. Um, and they... That's like kind of where it said that they had not found several of the appendages. And yeah, they were also able to locate many abrasions on her chest and torso, which indicated that she had been extensively beaten before her death. And she was so badly disfigured and decomposing at this point that the only way they were able to identify her was actually by her dental records. So remember, we're in the 1960s. They're pretty limited in what they can do. There's no DNA testing or anything like that at this point. I mean, we don't have computers. We're in a small Midwest town, and they don't want to think things like this can happen um, that in a way that's not an accident. This is before serial killers are really a thing. Like, we don't have the internet. People, even, like, jurisdiction to jurisdiction, like, counties aren't really talking to each other. So they're not, like, linking things up between different police departments. But 
something really weird happened two days after her remains had been identified. They were getting ready to have the funeral. So her body was in a casket at the funeral home. And a young man claiming to be a friend of the family arrived at the funeral home and wanted to take a photograph of the body while it was in the coffin. Oh, my God. So weird. He claimed that this was going to be like a keepsake for her parents, which sus. Um, so the person working there was basically like, no, like, you can't do that. And he replied with, do you mean you can't fix her up enough so I could just get one picture of her? Stop. Creep. So the receptionist was just like really overwhelmed by this whole situation and didn't gather like enough like information. Basically, she couldn't give a clear description of the man, but she said that he was like a handsome young white male with dark hair and he had driven a blue Chevrolet. And she also noted that he was not carrying a camera. So lots of weird, creepy vibes. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. So like I kind of said, police are hoping that this is a one-off thing, that it's some kind of accident or whatever. They don't want to deal with like a big picture serial killer type deal going on. Um, and for about a year, nothing else happens. And then on July 5th, 1968, a partially decomposed mutilated body is found by construction workers, again, on the side of the road. This time, it was another student, and her name was Joanne Schall. She was an art student who was also attending Eastern Michigan University, and she was 20 years old. So same kind of profile as the first victim. Was the road that they were both found on, was it a busy road or no? Um, I think they were two different roads. So the one, the original one was like by an abandoned farm. So I think it was more like out in the country. So I don't think it was super busy. But they did know in all these cases that like the bodies were placed very like out in the open so that they could be found. And even with a lot of them that they noted that they had been moved like a couple times within the area. So like the bodies had been out there and then presumably the murderer came back and moved them because it was like taking too long for the body to get found. Sick. Sick. Yeah. Um, so back to Joanne, she was last seen by her roommate, Susan Colby at a Washtenaw Avenue bus stop on the evening of June 30th, 1968. Uh, she had intended to travel to Ann Arbor, which is like very close to Ypsilanti, to go visit her boyfriend, and her roommate had accompanied her to the bus stop. Uh, the roommate told investigators that Joanne had informed her of her intentions to hitchhike when it became apparent that she had missed the last bus. And one of the first vehicles to pass by uh, once she decided to hitchhike was a red and black Pontiac Bonneville that had three young white men in it. The vehicle um, 
stopped and asked her if she wanted a ride. And the roommate was able to tell police that the driver had been about like 20 years old, clean cut with short, dark hair. Uh, She said that she had attempted to uh, tell Joanne to not go with the men. She was like, yo, this is a bad idea. Don't do this. But that Joanne decided against that and ended up going with the men. She promised to call her roommate to make sure that she was okay, you know, just to put her mind at ease once she reached her boyfriend's house. But less than three hours later, the roommate reported her missing after she didn't receive any contact. So now at this point, the police are like, okay, well, where do we start? Who who are we looking for? And they bring in 150 people that own red and black vehicles in the state of Michigan. So any guy that mildly fits the description of the driver of this hitchhiking vehicle, they bring in. And so they had a composite drawing that they used uh, that they got from the roommate, and then obviously the make and model and color of the car. But they didn't, nothing happened with that. So two months after Joanne's murder, there were two more eyewitnesses that they found that said that they had observed her walking with a young man um, the evening that she disappeared. And neither of them were certain, but they thought that the guy that she was with was John Norman Collins, who was also a student at Eastern Michigan University, who was majoring in elementary education. And he lived right across the street from Joanne. Um, And he like physically looked like the composite drawing that police had made from uh, the description of the roommate. So they really don't have anything at this point over the next year, several other brutal murders that look like they're linked to these two occur and that police are finally pressured by the public and they decide to really ramp up their observance of the crimes. So they put together a task force and they gather a bunch of the different local authorities and state police just to make sure that all the information is accounted for and that they're all on the same page, basically. Okay, so the final murder that was attributed to the killer was that of 18-year-old Karen Sue Bynaman. She, once again, was an Eastern Michigan University student, and she was last seen alive on July 23, 1969. She was reported missing by her roommate, Sherry Green, when she didn't return home uh, by curfew. They lived in dorms, and so they had, like, a dorm curfew. She had been seen by her two roommates uh, that afternoon, and she was on her way downtown to a wig shop, of all places. So three days after her disappearance... They found her body face down in a wooded gully alongside road again, and her body was found completely nude. 
at this point, the police know, as we kind of discussed, that in several of these instances, the murderer had been returning to the scene to move the body to make it easier to be found or possibly some kind of sexual rituals were going on. Weird shit. But basically, (laughs) he had been returning. So what they do is they enforce a news blackout. They don't let anybody report on it. They have as few officers at the scene as possible. And they stake out this crime scene to see if this guy's going to come back. So they're going to try and catch him at the scene. Oh, thank God. Okay. So they've got, I think, around like eight or ten officers observing from a bunch of different angles. And around 12.15 in the morning, they see a young man approaching the gully. So one guy sees him. He radios to say, hey... I see this guy. Can I go get him? Fucking radio malfunctions. Nobody can hear him. And I think what happened was the guy gets tipped off. I think he hears like the sound of like radio interference or something. Gets sketched, runs away. So they're so close to getting this guy. And he slips through their fingers again. And they're back to square one. Which stresses me out. Um, So they go back to the drawing board, right? So they retrace uh, her steps, like what she did um, with Karen Sooth. So the last murder, they retrace what she did on the day of her disappearance. And they go and they question the owner of the wig shop because that was the last place that she had been known to go and the owner of the wig shop basically is like oh yeah I remember her she came in she recalled that she was there with a young man with short dark hair wearing a horizontal striped sweater and he was waiting outside on a blue motorcycle basically the shop owner says that Karen Sue told her, end quote, I've got to be either the bravest or the dumbest girl alive because I've just accepted a ride from this guy. So she like had spoken to the wig shop owner about how she just met this guy on the motorcycle oh outside. <laughs> no. Yes. That, that has to be so creepy when you know that then she's found dead. <sighs> I can't imagine. Um, so they, there's like a whole bunch of, to how they catch this guy. This is one of the first just like, holy shit instances, like, what are the chances of that? So the description of the young man, uh, that she was on the motorcycle was heard by one of the patrolmen named Larry Mathewson. And he believed that the person that was described by the wig shop owner might have been John Norman Collins, who was also who those other people thought might be walking with the prior girl. And so this police officer had been a fraternity brother of Collins, and they had actually previously interviewed Collins, but he was eliminated uh, because he had an alibi. Whatever. 
So Colin's uncle was also a police sergeant. So he's got like a couple of ties to the police here. Like they're officers who know him. And um, he had been house-sitting for the police sergeant, for his uncle, right? The week before Kieran Sue disappeared. So they get home and he hears this. He's like, oh, like my nephew, that's weird. Like something just like didn't sit right with him. And when they were on vacation, they came home and he noticed in the basement that there were like some black patches on the basement floor. So once again, doesn't sit right with him. And I guess he also found like a bottle of ammonia, some washing powder, and then a canister of black spray paint that were missing from his house. So that's a lot right there, right? Basically, the uncle has some of the forensics people come over to the house and he's like, I don't know, like, what these black marks are. Can you test them for blood? So they test that. No blood. Nothing weird. But they're like, okay, there's nothing here. We're going to leave. On the way out, one of the forensics guys notices on the floor that there's, like, some real small pieces of hair. Like, somebody had gotten their hair cut. The uncle's like, oh, yeah, my wife cut the boy's hair before we went on vacation this is like where she does it like down in the basement so this is weird because oh my god tell me that there's some of that hair on one of the bodies <laughs> i yes and i think a couple of them so one of the things that the murderer would do was shove uh fabric in the mouths of the girls to stop them from like screaming and they found some of that hair and I think it was Karen Sue's body like shoved in with the fabric super sketch okay so like what are the chances of that so they found that bring the hair back match it up because they you know they're limited in DNA and whatnot but they can match it um, by looking at it under a microscope and then also they did end up finding once they got down and really looked they found blood spatter in the floor of the basement of the uncles and it was type a which was the same blood type as karen sue's yeah i think that that's an important thing for people who don't know that much about true crime is prior to dna they would like basically the only clue would be they would try to match it to the type of blood that would be how they figured out stuff is which type of blood as opposed to dna markers so Yikes. Yep. They have all this basically, and they can link it to John Norman Collins finally. And on August 1st, 1969, he was formally arraigned for the murder of Karen Sue Feynman. He was held without bond, gets sent to trial, and is unanimously found guilty of first degree murder of Karen Sue. Unfortunately, they don't have evidence to bring all these other cases against him. So he gets a life sentence for Karen Sue, but unfortunately for the families of these other victims, they weren't able to bring 
cases against him for that. And I mean, this is really sad too, because there were so many victims, but they ranged in age between, I think the youngest was 13 up to, I think like 20 or 21. So they were all really young women. And obviously just like the heinous nature of these crimes, the way the bodies were mutilated and then also um, like sexually abused, just really, really horrible. So he never admitted to doing any of the other ones either? No. He, to this day, I think he's 75 now, claims his innocence. He's serving out his life sentence in administrative segregation at uh, Marquette Branch Prison, which I think is probably the UP, right? Uh, I mean, I'm guessing just because Marquette's up in the peninsula. Yeah. Uh, It says that he maintains frequent correspondence with individuals, particularly women, who write it to him. Ew, stop. Yeah. Why? Why would you do that? And he continues to maintain his innocence of the murder of Karen Sue, as well as all the other murders that were linked to the Michigan murderer, because that's what they called it in the news was they called this person the Michigan murderer or the Ypsilanti Ripper. And so he claims that he was innocent, but I forgot way back, like in the day, he was given the chance to take a polygraph test and he didn't want to. So they gave him another chance in 1977 after he had already been like convicted and in prison to take a public polygraph test and he refused again. So real weird that you're just so innocent, but you refuse to take any kind of like polygraph test or anything to prove that. I mean, I can understand the first time actually refusing to because they're not super reliable. So if you're going to be convicted based on it, but the second time you have nothing to lose. Right. So I don't know, super sketch. And he also... Another thing that like was brought up that's really sad is, you know, they have kind of the who now, but they never got a good why because he refuses to admit to anything. He won't talk about anything. So there's no real like closure or consolation for the victims of these families. And then also there was another woman that was killed in California that they believe that he killed as well, but they weren't able to directly link that with evidence again. I don't know. It's super sad. Like when someone kills someone, obviously that's terrible. But then when they won't give a why, I think that that is really hard for people to get. It's harder for families to get closure when they don't. Hi. Hi. Okay. Thank you. Well, guys, we're going to cut today short because we're both on mom duty and trying to record a podcast, which was the worst idea ever. But we love y'all and we wanted to be here anyways. Yeah. um, Adios from the baby crew. Yeah, she said we got to go, go. So that's about it, folks. We've got kids that are refusing that. Wish us luck and follow us on social media. (laughs) Yes. Send us emails, midwest at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram, TikTok. I don't know. Give us a like. Give us a a review, a rating. Send us beer money. (laughs) We love you guys. Bye. Bye.